0: NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Next week, we begin our journey into a new case. Season 11 has tie-ins to Season 10 with some familiar characters. Throughout Season 10, I repeatedly stated that I believe that the case against Jennifer Jeffley was built based on the corrupt tactics of two men. I've been clear in my opinion that Detective Roy Swainson lied in his report, fabricated witness statements, lied to Jennifer's family, lied directly to Jennifer, and lied under oath at trial in order to close the case on Catalina's murder. There are those of you who have defended Swainson, and I sincerely hope that if you're one of those people, that you tune in to Season 11. But Swainson wasn't the only one. He had a partner in crime, Detective Waymond Allen. You'll remember that it was Allen who interrogated 15-year-old Jennifer Jeffley for seven hours without a parent ever being notified that she was a suspect in direct violation of Texas law. Throughout the process, he brought her candy, shared a meal with her, and according to Jennifer, promised her that if she just signed a statement, that she could go home. He elicited a clearly false confession from 15-year-old Jeffley, complete with provably false details that can be traced back to Allen's own assumptions. The confession was ultimately thrown out by an appeals court, which unfortunately for Jennifer was not enough to overturn her conviction. But just like Swainson, Allen has his own group of supporters. Those convinced that the good old boy would never use dishonest tactics to elicit a false confession. And I'm here to tell you that he has no such scruples. Today, I want to give you a very brief introduction into the case of Charles Raby. Jennifer Jeffley's case is ripe for interpretation. I'll be the first to admit that. There's only my analysis of her confession and the surrounding evidence to suggest that Allen elicited a false confession and went to trial knowing exactly what he had done. There is most definitely a lot of room for argument in that case. But imagine if there wasn't nearly as much gray area. Imagine a scenario where someone confessed to being the sole perpetrator in a murder only to find out later that DNA evidence definitively proves that the killer was someone else entirely. If that had happened, then would you believe that Wayman Allen was a crooked cop? Well, that is exactly what happened to Charles Raby. I'm not going to do a deep dive into Charles's case. I just don't have the time and we already have another case to move on to for Season 11. But the purpose of this episode is two-pronged. Number one, to give you further context into my conclusions in Jennifer Jeffley's case and further expose the Houston Police Department and the disgraceful Harris County DA's office for their corruption. And number two, I want to give you a brief introduction into Raby's case. And then if you feel compelled to dig in any further, all of the case materials for the case can be found at SaveCharlesRaby.com. Most of what I'm going to share with you today, in fact the overwhelming majority of this episode, will be read directly to you out of some of Charles's legal filings with both the Texas Court of Appeals and the United States Supreme Court. But first, a little background. Charles was convicted in 1994 and sentenced to death for the 1992 murder of 72-year-old Edna Franklin. Franklin was found stabbed to death in her home. Living with her at the time were her two grandsons. A few witnesses told police that they had seen Charles Raby in the neighborhood that day, and one of the witnesses said that they had seen a man fitting Raby's general description jumping Miss Franklin's fence, but did not actually identify Charles. Based on this, Detective Allen brought Charles in to be questioned. And just like with Jennifer Jeffley, Allen doesn't record the interview or even take detailed notes. At one point, Allen has Raby's girlfriend and her child brought into the station in my opinion, to be used as leverage. Ultimately, Detective Allen types up a confession for Raby, just like he did with Jennifer, and has Charles sign it. At trial, the state used Raby's clearly false confession against him. Obviously. But that's not all. The Harris County DA who was prosecuting the case was so well aware of the fact that they had the wrong man that they cheated. I'm sure you're surprised. The state intentionally and knowingly presented false testimony and evidence against Rabie in order to secure a death sentence for an innocent man. Prior to trial, the state's own expert had examined the blood that was found underneath Edna's fingernails and determined that the blood type did not match Edna, her grandsons who lived with her, or Charles Rabie. She had scratched her killer during the attack and had his blood under her nails. And the state knew it. But rather than turning Charles loose, the state doubled down. They withheld the exculpatory lab report from the defense and had their experts lie on the stand about his findings. And it worked. Charles Raby was sentenced to be killed by the state of Texas. Another big win for Waymond Allen and the Harris County DA's office. Meanwhile, Charles Raby has been fighting for his life ever since. Charles fought through his direct appeals and his habeas, both were denied, before his team finally discovered the blood evidence that had been hidden from them. And you'd think that would have been enough for Harris County to finally throw in the towel. After all, this is a man's life. He was sentenced to be executed. But if you thought that, well, you're just not familiar enough with Harris County. You're wrong. The current legal battle, as I understand it, revolves around Harris County fighting to keep Raby from presenting the new evidence to the Court of Criminal Appeals. They claim that he should have brought the issue up in his first habeas filing. In layman's terms, Harris County is basically saying, we don't care if he's innocent, we won and he should be executed anyway. It's not our fault that he didn't know where to look for the evidence that we hid from him. I cannot possibly do the details of this case nearly as much justice as Charles's attorney's, especially not in a short time frame. So from here, I'm going to read to you Charles's second application for post-conviction habeas corpus. The motion that, as I understand it, the state is currently fighting to keep out of court. So here's the filing. It'll be long. It'll be the majority of this episode. It'll be broken up with our two usual ad breaks. Here it is. This is a death penalty case. Charles Douglas Raby, the applicant, files this second application for a post-conviction writ of habeas corpus pursuant to Article 11071 of the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure. This application presents, among other important grounds for relief, Material exculpatory evidence that was not considered in Mr. Raby's prior habeas application because the evidence was not available at the time that application was submitted. Specifically, this application presents blood typing and DNA evidence demonstrating that the decedent had the blood of one or two men other than Mr. Raby or the two grandsons with whom she lived underneath their fingernails on both hands when she was found stabbed to death. This evidence was not considered in Mr. Raby's first application for habeas corpus for two reasons. One, the state withheld the lab report demonstrating the presence of a blood type that did not match Mr. Raby or the decedent from the defense counsel at trial, and in fact presented false or misleading testimony at trial that the results of the blood type testing were inconclusive. And two, The method of DNA testing that ultimately demonstrated the presence of male blood DNA under the decedent's fingernails that did not match Mr. Raby was not available when Mr. Raby's first habeas application was submitted. In the context of this case, in which no physical or eyewitness evidence implicates Mr. Raby in this murder, in which Mr. Raby was convicted on the basis of a weak custodial statement that did not match numerous details of the crime and was obtained under duress, and in which there is no plausible explanation for the presence of another man's blood under the decedent's fingernails, other than the very plausible explanation that it was the blood of the man who stabbed her. This new evidence is extraordinarily exculpatory and would have resulted in acquittal if it had been available at the time of Mr. Raby's trial. The material facts are described at length in the statement of facts below. In summary, Mr. Raby was convicted in 1994 of capital murder for the 1992 death of Edna Franklin, a frail 72-year-old woman who was found stabbed in the home that she shared with her two grandsons. No physical evidence, no DNA, blood, hair follicles, fingerprints, weapon, or anything else has ever implicated Mr. Raby in this crime. Likewise, no eyewitnesses have ever implicated Mr. Raby in the crime. At most, several witnesses testified that they saw Mr. Raby in the neighborhood on the day of the crime and one witness testified that he saw a man who matched mr raby's general appearance in some respects jump over the decedent's fence on the evening of the crime although he could not identify the man he saw as mr raby and initially testified that the man he saw was 4 to 6 inches taller than mr raby other evidence was inconsistent with mr raby having committed this violent stabbing that left copious amounts of blood on miss franklin and her surroundings most significantly Police recovered the dark vinyl jacket that witnesses saw Mr. Raby wearing around the neighborhood on the night of the crime and found no blood. Also, police found no cuts, scratches, or other marks of a struggle on Mr. Raby when he was arrested three and a half days after the stabbing. Thus, it is no exaggeration to say that the only evidence presented at Mr. Raby's trial that was even arguably sufficient to support a conviction was the statement that he gave police in custody shortly after his arrest. That statement, however, has the classic hallmarks of a false confession. First, it contradicts the physical and witness evidence of the crime in numerous irreconcilable ways. For example, in his custodial statement, Mr. Raby states that he entered the house through the open front door, whereas Mrs. Franklin's daughter testified that her mother told her on the phone shortly before the crime that the doors of the house were locked, and Mrs. Franklin's grandson testified that his grandmother habitually locked her doors. The state presented physical evidence that the murderer entered the house through a side window. Additionally, Mr. Raby's custodial statement says that he walked in the house, immediately struggled with the decedent in the living room, and then walked out the back door. Whereas the state presented evidence that Mrs. Franklin's purse had been rifled through in her bedroom. Moreover, Mr. Raby's custodial statement says that he washed his bloody hands in a puddle away from the crime scene. But police found no blood on any exit from the house. Second, Mr. Raby was highly intoxicated on the night of the crime and when he gave his custodial statement to police. Those two facts, as well as aspects of Mr. Raby's background and personality, left him very vulnerable to suggestion. He had been in the vicinity of the decedent's home on the night in question, and although he did not remember committing the crime, it was easy for police to persuade him that he must have through suggestive questioning. As a side note here, Doesn't that sound familiar? In Jennifer Jeffley's case, the prosecutor presented as guilty evidence that through suggestion, Jennifer kept changing her story. And we have the exact same thing happening here to Charles Raby. Now back into the filing. Third, the offense report's description of the interrogation is consistent with suggestive questioning. At a crucial moment in the interrogation, after Mr. Raby had consistently denied going to the decedent's house on the night of her murder, Police told Mr. Raby that they, quote, knew he was not being truthful. Sergeant Allen advised Raby that he had been identified jumping over a fence leaving Edna's house Thursday night at about the time she was killed, end quote. That statement was false. A witness had told police that he saw a white male similar to Raby's general appearance jumping the decedent's fence, but no one had identified that person as Mr. Raby based on knowing him personally in a photo lineup or otherwise. At that point, Mr. Raby supposedly, quote, broke and admitted that he had not been truthful. But according to the police report, he then said, quote, I was there, I went through the front door, and I saw her on the living room floor, end quote. Only later, after police continued to question Mr. Raby in a, quote, narrative question-answer format that was reduced to a typed statement by Sergeant Allen, end quote, did Mr. Raby purportedly say that Mrs. Franklin was alive when he entered the house. But even then, his description of the murder itself is remarkably lacking in detail, stating only that he grabbed Mrs. Franklin, struggled with her to the floor, and then he saw her covered in blood. Moreover, what is noticeably missing in the offense report is any recitation of what questions the officer asked Mr. Raby in the time period when his statement morphed from having seen the decedent on the floor when he entered the home, to having entered the home and struggled with her to the floor. The interrogation was not videotaped or recorded. Moreover, the offense report markedly shifts at the point where Mr. Raby supposedly, quote, broke, from a recitation of both the officer's questions and Mr. Raby's answers to a summary only of Mr. Raby's supposed answers. Without a recording or more fulsome offense report, it is impossible to know definitively whether the officer planted further suggestions to, quote, fill in Mr. Raby's memory, as with his misleading suggestion that Mr. Raby had been identified jumping over the decedent's fence. We know, however, that a Texas appellate court has since criticized the very officer in question, Detective Allen, for similar improper interrogation techniques that rendered a custodial statement inadmissible in, wait for it, Jeff Lee vs. The State Finally, at the time Mr. Raby was interrogated, police also held his girlfriend, Mary Alice Gomez, and her infant son at the police station. Mr. Raby had been wanted by police for several days when he was arrested and was with Miss Gomez when he was arrested. Mr. Raby feared that if he did not cooperate with police, Ms. Gomez would be arrested as well and could even lose custody of her son. Whether police intended so or not, their presence placed an enormous pressure on Mr. Raby to go along with the officers questioning him by agreeing to whatever version of events they suggested to him. These essential facts, among many others described in detail in the statement of facts below, revealed just how weak the evidence against Mr. Raby was. On the state's version of events, Mr. Raby walked in the front door, despite evidence that the door was locked and someone entering through a window, stabbed Mrs. Franklin repeatedly, for no reason, without getting any blood on his jacket or sustaining any wounds of his own, and then walked out through the back door without washing his bloody hands, even though there was no blood on the back door and no explanation for who rifled through Mrs. Franklin's purse in her bedroom. Setting aside the inconsistencies between the evidence and the custodial statement, plus the circumstances in which that statement was made, the evidence that Mr. Raby committed this crime was exceptionally weak. We now know, however, one additional crucial fact to add to the mix and which was not presented to the jury. The decedent had the blood of at least one male who was not Mr. Raby or the two grandsons who lived with the frail 72-year-old woman underneath her fingernails. The lab analyst who testified at trial, Joseph Chu from the beleaguered Houston Police Department Crime Lab, knew that the decedent had blood under her fingernails that did not match Mr. Raby or Mrs. Franklin because his lab report reflects the detection of a blood substance that is inconsistent with both of their blood types. In a blatant Hornbook violation of Brady v. Maryland, the state did not disclose that evidence to defense counsel at trial. Moreover, in a Hornbook violation of Giglio v. United States, the state doubled down on its own Brady violation When Mr. Chu testified at trial that the results of his blood work examinations were, quote, inconclusive, they were not inconclusive. They conclusively proved that another person's blood was under the fingernail of Mrs. Franklin in a location consistent with a defensive struggle. In subsequent post-conviction proceedings discussed below, the state's own serology expert admitted that Mr. Chu's statement to the jury was false. Defense counsel did not challenge Mr. Chu's statement on cross-examination. They also did not cross-examine the testifying officers about the circumstances of the interrogation, and in fact, astonishingly, asked Sergeant Allen a leading question inviting him to confirm that the statement had been given freely. Moreover, they did not put on any defense at the guilt-innocence phase of the trial. Finally, In their closing arguments, defense counsel did not point out all of the vagueness in the custodial statement and the inconsistencies between that statement and the other evidence of the crime. Rather, they explicitly conceded seven times that Mr. Raby killed the decedent, stating, among several similar statements, that, quote, the state has proved there was a killing, they have proved that Mr. Raby committed the killing, Charles Raby made a confession, he made a confession about a very horrible thing he had done, end quote. Defense counsel chose instead to defend Mr. Raby based only on whether the state had established one of the predicate offenses for capital murder, bizarrely attempting to impeach the state's evidence that there had been a forced entry through a window, even though that evidence strongly undermined the only meaningful evidence of Mr. Raby's involvement in the crime, his custodial statement. Defense counsel's total abandonment of their responsibility to zealously advocate for Mr. Raby in those and many other respects denied him the effective assistance of counsel in violation of Strickland v. Washington. The state may argue that defense counsel's decision to concede the validity of the confession and the murder was a reasonable strategic decision based on the strength of the evidence against Mr. Raby, hoping to engender mercy for Mr. Raby's cooperation with police. The argument is wrong because defense counsel did not perform a minimum investigation to determine that Mr. Raby did not remember the night of the crime. Defense counsel were in no position to evaluate the strength of the only meaningful evidence against Mr. Raby. Moreover, this argument merely highlights the enormous prejudice flowing from the state's concealment of evidence that Mrs. Franklin had another person's blood under her fingernails. Defense counsel cannot possibly make a reasonably informed decision about whether to concede that Mr. Raby committed the murder without knowing that another person's blood was found on Mrs. Franklin in a location consistent with a defensive struggle. There can be no doubt that if competent defense counsel had known the elementary fact, they would not have taken the extraordinary step of conceding that their client committed murder, which borders on ineffective representation in any case and instead would have conducted a zealous defense that investigated all of the weaknesses in the state's case and then highlighted rather than minimize the many problems with the custodial statement that was the cornerstone of that case. Defense counsel also denied Mr. Raby the effective assistance of counsel at the punishment phase of the trial in violation of Strickland v. Washington. After putting up no meaningful opposition to the state's evidence at the guilt-innocent phase in the apparent belief that resisting conviction was futile and that their energy should be concentrated towards Mr. Raby's presumably inevitable sentencing hearing, defense counsel at the punishment phase simply, quote, went through the motions and failed to put on available, compelling cases on both special issues. On the, quote, future dangerousness special issue, defense counsel failed to rebut the state's evidence of Mr. Raby's prior bad acts with compelling evidence that Mr. Raby likely could adjust well to the prison context and instead put on an alleged expert psychologist who exaggerated the risk that Mr. Raby would commit future violent acts. On the mitigation special issue, although defense counsel did call several witnesses who described aspect of Mr. Raby's life, defense counsel failed to develop substantial mitigating testimony and terribly mishandled the little evidence they did produce. Combined with defense counsel's failure to generate any doubt about Mr. Raby's guilt at the guilt-innocence phase, there is a reasonable probability that, but for defense counsel's deficient performance, the outcome of the punishment phase would have been different. Finally, more than 12 years following Mr. Raby's conviction, additional new evidence surfaced from DNA testing, which undersigned counsel obtained through proceedings under Chapter 64 of the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure which Mr. Raby filed before the federal district court ruled on his habeas petition, demonstrating his confidence that his DNA would not be found. That new evidence, which relied on a new method of Y-chromosome DNA testing, demonstrated conclusively that there was blood under Mrs. Franklin's fingernails and that the blood originated from one or two males who were neither Mr. Raby nor the two grandsons who lived in her home. The state has no plausible explanation for the presence of blood under Mrs. Franklin's fingernails other than the very likely scenario that the source of the blood was Mrs. Franklin clawing the man or men who murdered her. None of this evidence or the claims presented in this application have ever been considered by a Texas court. These issues obviously could not have been resolved in Mr. Raby's direct appeal because they are inextricably intertwined with extra record evidence. Moreover, other than the claims for ineffective assistance of counsel, the evidence at the core of the claims presented in this application, Mr. Chu's lab report and the DNA evidence obtained in 2006-2007, to 2007, were not available when Mr. Raby's first petition for habeas corpus relief was filed in 1998. Thus, this court can grant relief on those claims because their factual bases were not available on the date the prior application was filed. Furthermore, the court can grant relief on all of Mr. Raby's claims because, but for the state's violation of Mr. Raby's rights under the United States Constitution, no rational juror could have found Mr. Raby guilty beyond a reasonable doubt or returned an affirmative answer on both of the special issues in the punishment phase. Finally, this court should recognize an additional ground for considering Mr. Raby's ineffective assistance of counsel claims in this application based on a state-appointed habeas counsel's unqualified incompetence and ineffectiveness during Mr. Raby's initial habeas proceeding. The application filed by the lawyer appointed to handle that case, James Keegan, submitted an application that exclusively raised claims that arose out of the trial record, contravening ex parte Gardner refusing to consider claims brought in Article 1107-1 brief that could have been raised on direct appeal. Indeed, Mr. Keegan's records indicate that he undertook no investigation at all, although Article 1107-1 requires it unambiguously. Moreover, Mr. Keegan submitted that bare-bones application that raised no new evidence or extra record claims and risked procedurally defaulting valid claims— despite Mr. Raby's persistent efforts to cajole Mr. Keegan into investigating his case and raising new claims, and even his attempt to fire Mr. Keegan, who blocked his attempt by failing to withdraw as counsel. In this limited context, in which valid claims that could only be raised in habeas application were not raised because of the ineffectiveness and active obstruction of court-appointed habeas counsel, the court should consider Mr. Rabie's claims as if they had been asserted in his initial habeas application. In short, this is an extraordinary case in which defense counsel chose to concede that their client committed murder, ignorant of the fact that the decedent had a stranger's blood under her fingernails. Mr. Raby is entitled to have a jury determine his guilt with the benefit of a zealous defense knowing that essential fact. As set out in detail below, Mr. Raby is entitled to habeas relief on 10 grounds. Number 1. Under Texas Code of Criminal Procedure Article 11073, relevant DNA evidence was not yet available at the time of his trial, and relevant blood typing evidence was not ascertainable through reasonable diligence at the time of the trial, both of which would have been admissible and without which it is likelier than not that Mr. Raby would not have been convicted. Number two. Mr. Rabies' conviction violates his constitutional rights because the state failed to produce material exculpatory blood-type testing results. Number three. Mr. Rabies' conviction violates his constitutional rights because the state knowingly put on perjured material testimony to obtain his conviction. Number four. Mr. Rabies' conviction violates his constitutional rights because the state used false and misleading material testimony. Number five. Mr. Rabie's conviction violates his constitutional rights because the state destroyed material exculpatory evidence. Number 6. Mr. Rabie's conviction violates his constitutional rights because newly discovered evidence establishes his actual innocence. Number 7. Mr. Rabie's conviction violates his constitutional rights because it is based on an involuntary confession. Number 8. Mr. Rabie's conviction violates his constitutional rights because he received ineffective assistance of counsel at the guilt-innocence phase of his trial. Number nine, Mr. Raby's death sentence violates his constitutional rights because he received ineffective assistance of counsel at the punishment phase of his trial. And number ten, Mr. Raby's conviction violates his constitutional rights because the state impermissibly commented on his silence at trial, which defense counsel and appellate counsel ineffectively failed to challenge by objection, And on direct appeal, respectively. And one more side note before I wrap this up what is referring to there is the prosecutor made mention to the jury at trial that Mr. Raby not testifying, which is his constitutional right, could be an indicator that he's guilty. They're not allowed to do that. And that's what he's raising here. Now, I'll get back in for the last sentence of the filing. Therefore, Mr. Raby requests that the Court of Criminal Appeals review this second application as permitted by Section 5 of Article Eleven O Seven One, and remand his case to the district court for proper habeas proceedings. Everything that you just heard can be confirmed and is documented in the case file, which is available at SaveCharlesRaby.com. Remember, as you sit back and reflect on the information that you just heard, that Harris County is trying to stop Charles Raby from presenting this evidence in his own defense. If they are victorious and they manage to keep this evidence out of court, then the alternative will be the murder of Charles Raby. He will be executed if he is not granted a new trial. The state knows this and they have known about this highly exculpatory evidence even before the original trial. And this is why the Harris County DA's office has not seen the end of me, nor have they seen the end of all of you. Our battle with them is just getting ramped up. Sandy Melgar, Jennifer Jeffley, Charles Raby, and our Season 11 case have all suffered the corruption of the same office, and I will expose... Every single solitary one of you that are complicit in stealing the lives of the innocent. And our next journey begins next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondering, produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy Sharlena White, Kaywood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsey Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com/truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as three dollars a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Like our Facebook page, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming. M U R R B G A M I N G. Don't forget that we always have our 24 7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269 224 2833.